the Wilderness Podcast. I'm your host, Baron Pace. It is the 16th of April, 2020. We are back with the usual long-form interview-based podcast uh, that we always bring you. But as our regular listeners will know, in the last couple of weeks, I've introduced some shorts. Into the Wilderness Shorts is the tag that you need to look for if you're looking down your list of Into the Wilderness podcasts. Tell me what you think. Are you enjoying them? A couple of you have already let us know. It's all been positive so far, but as always, I love to hear your feedback. Before I get into what the show is on, a massive shout out to our Patreon supporters. We've had some new patrons in the last couple of weeks. Thank you to every single one of you. But this week's top tier supporters include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman, Chris Griffith, John Henry Pete, Tom McCraith, James Benjamin, Normandale, James Marchington, the guys at South Ayrshire Stalking, Josh Starling, Sean Rowan, and our newest top tier, James Alban Corbin. Thank you very much to every single one of you and all of our Patreon supporters. It really, really makes a difference to be able to bring these shows and... It's really because of Patreon supporters that I've been able to carve out some time uh, and put out these extra short shows. So, once again, thank you very much. This show is all about lead toxicity and its use in particular in in ammunition. It's a really complicated topic and one which I wish I could have covered a couple of weeks back when it was all across the news and papers and radio programs in the UK – But the problem with rushing interviews like that is that you tend to only get half the story. So I pulled conversations and research from around the globe to put together what I hope is one of the most comprehensive debates on lead yet. I'll introduce each person throughout, but you'll be hearing from Dan Reynolds from the British Association for Shooting and Conservation, Roy Lupton, who's a falconer and field sports advocate, David CP, my good buddy from over in Denmark, who runs a hunting school and is a well-known voice of educated reason in the hunting community. You'll also hear from Diggory Haydock, who is a vintage gun dealer and a previous guest on the show, as well as uh, an extract from BBC Science Today, uh, where they also discuss the topic. And of course, we need our own science in this podcast to really get to the guts of what lead is all about. So for that, I got hold of avian specialist vet Tom Dutton. We have an incredibly wide array of guests, and I hope that I've managed to put it together in a way that people can follow and understand. It has been by far the most time-consuming podcast I have ever done, uh, and I really hope that it's worth it. So let me know what you think. Quick note, Northern Shooting Show has changed their date, unsurprisingly, with the current lockdown. I'll bring you more information as we get closer, but right now it's going to be held on the 28th and 29th of August at the Yorkshire Showground. Visit northernshootingshow.co.uk for more information. Competition time, as we always do every two weeks. I have a winner. I asked you two weeks ago to leave us a review for the chance to win a copy of Modern Huntsman. I was even going to let you pick what volume you wanted uh, because we are reprinting some of the back issues which were no longer available. 
We had so many amazing reviews. Thank you so much to all of you who took the time because it really makes a difference for other people being able to find the podcast. But the winner that I picked uh, is at Sea River Hill on Apple Podcasts. So congratulations, Sea River Hill. Uh, Give me a shout on email or social and I will get a copy of Modern Huntsman out to you. I thought I might just read your review. I hope that's okay. It's in the public domain anyway. Uh, Sea River Hill says, hands down my favorite podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, The Pace Brothers cover a huge range of topics in an informed, educational and honest way. A great mixture of science, conservation, adventure, and hunting combined with some incredible guests. Highly recommended. Of course, it is really our guests who make this podcast. But thank you very, very much. Two weeks ago, I let all of our podcast listeners know about a discount code, Into the Wilderness. The discount code is Into the Wilderness, same name as the podcast. You can use it on our website, thepacebrothers.com, and it will give you 15% off anything related to Modern Huntsman on the shop amazing deal you guys are amazing so that's why we've managed to do that into the wilderness is the discount code just use it in checkout this week for the competition to win a copy of modern huntsman again whatever volume you want even the volume that's not out yet uh, volume five which we're just putting together now all i would like is a share of the podcast on social media so i always put out uh, a post on, on Twitter and on, on Instagram, either through stories or a post, and on Facebook as well. So just share that. And all the people who share it, I will stick you into the random number generator and pick a name out of the hat to win a copy. On Twitter, you will find the podcast uh, at Byron J. Pace, which is exactly the same on Instagram, at Byron J. Pace. And if you're using Facebook, if you're not on my personal Facebook, then at Pace Brothers Film. I've been trying to migrate uh, the page. We had two pages on Facebook, one for the Pace Brothers Film and then one just for the podcast. The podcast one's still going to stay there, but it's just far too much work to manage all these pages. So I'm trying to put all of the podcast stuff on uh, Pace, at Pace Brothers Film as well. So I will hold you up no longer. We're going to jump straight into the show. I hope you like it. Roy, welcome back to the Into the Wilderness podcast. You've been a guest on here before, but we were in person last time. And this time we are recording um, from quite literally the other side of the planet from one another in very weird times. Are you completely locked down in your house? Yeah, we are. I mean, we're still uh, we're still getting out and uh, in the evening and just doing a little bit of shooting because we've still got uh, a little bit of fox control to do and a little bit of rat control to do. But apart from that, everything is uh, is pretty much shut down. So um yeah, the UK at the moment is is grinding to a halt as we speak, and uh, I think it's you've, you've got some uh, some bits starting over there in the states as well, which uh, look like it could get interesting for your um, travel, your travel home. home <laughs> but, but you're a hunter, so you must have a freezer full of meat. Um, the only problem is you might run out of bog roll. <laughs> We're already there, so uh, yeah, we've we've got um, we've got the sponges ready. We just got to go out and find the sticks. So uh, yeah, it's it is getting ridiculous. I mean, everybody has been out hunting for toilet roll. So uh, uh, wow, yeah, uh, okay. Well, we're not I'm here to talk about. I'm not going to get in there. Huh? We're not here to talk about hunting for toilet roll um, today. <laughs> we're here to talk about uh, we're here to talk about lead of all things. Now, in the weeks prior to the chaos that is coronavirus. The UK, the major UK hunting organizations came out uh, with a recommendation that we have a concerted shift away from lead within the next five years. Now, I'm using the word shift because 
it is not a ban that they've called for, but basically they they would like to see our community completely moving away from lead, um, mainly so that we are not forced because even those people who are maybe against this change would probably accept at some point in the future this is something that is going to happen. This is the direction that Europe is taking and the rest of the world, in fact. And even though we are now out of Europe, um, I think I think there is a momentum in that direction with the, the science and understanding that we have now that means that we're going to be continuing to phase out lead in our lifestyles just as we have done historically with lead pipes. Okay, before I get to the question I was going to ask Roy, let me lay the background out a little more. Here is Dan Reynolds talking to me just a few days after the lead phasing out announcement. An interesting few days. So uh, announcement went out on Monday, and that is a joint announcement uh, across uh, nine uh, shooting organisations. And basically, as you're, you're absolutely right, it's um, calling from a, a a voluntary transition away from the use of lead shot and single-use plastic in live quarry shooting uh, over the course of the next five years. Um, why have we got to this position now? Uh, a combination of factors. Um, there is obviously uh, a good deal of data around um, lead uh, and the impacts of lead on the environment, human health, uh, etc., which... Um, Evidence is certainly mounting and growing. Um, and you've also got, as we stand here now, some really good changes in terms of ammunition and ammunition product availability. So we are in a position now where we have got uh, the availability of um, non-lead ammunition, so uh, tungsten, steel, bismuth, um, but actually having a cost viable alternative in steel, which doesn't contain a plastic wad. So you've got an uh, you know, uh, eco wad, bio wad, whichever you want to call them. There are various products now on the market. So it allows us to use a non-lead ammunition without using a, uh, a plastic wad. And single-use plastic is probably one of the single biggest um, issues in terms of sort of the, the public consciousness uh, at this point in time. So moving away um, from those things, uh, we are in a situation where A, the evidence is mounting, B, that there are an availability of products, and C, and I think the other thing to um, note that is very important is that over the course of uh, the last 10 years or so, um, the European Chemicals Agency, which have uh, oversight of um, restricted or listed chemicals across Europe, have gone to and fro with the European Commission, um, looking at lead shot and the use of lead shot or lead in variety of products. And um, they are now looking again at lead in ammunition. Uh, uh, and the uh, ECHA, European Chemicals Agency, are looking at lead in all types of ammunition. They have gone to European Commission and basically said, look, we believe that there are these risks um, associated with lead shot in ammunition, and they're also looking at it in the um, various sort of fishing tackle products as well. Uh, and the European Commission have gone back to them and said, okay, we understand you've identified that these risks, so we now require you to produce a restriction dossier. European Chemicals Agency are in the process of putting that together. Uh, that restriction dossier will be put in place in October. And then we end up, um, if you look at the European Commission's timetables, uh, we will basically end up in a situation whereby that restriction system will be put in place from 2022. Now, many of the listeners may be sitting there thinking, well, 
we're not in uh, Europe we, anymore. We, we, we've left the EU, so why would that matter? Yeah. Um, well, it matters for two reasons. Uh, one is that um, primarily there is nothing stopping the adoption of uh, those EU legislative principles coming across to the UK. So we could be placed in a situation in 2022 whereby uh, our government seek to place a and I'm not preempting what that restriction dossier might say, but it might be an entire ban on all lead ammunition, which they might seek to um, phase in and put into Europe. Uh, sorry, UK law from Europe. Um, even if they don't do that, and if the restriction dossier is there is a ban on uh, lead shot in uh, hunting in Europe, and obviously the associated production of game meat products, we're in a bit of a tricky situation because 50% plus of our Game meat shot in this country, so I'm talking pheasants and partridges, is exported to continental Europe. The problem that presents is that if we are shooting things with lead, how do we export that product to Europe when they won't accept it? Um, we then have uh, an issue with an oversupply of game, which we have no market for, and that in turn has a knock-on effect to um, the game shooting uh, um, industry, uh, for want of a, a better term, and obviously that then has knock-on implications for rural economies, rural communities, and all the rest of it. With the groundwork done, let's get back to Roy Lupton and focus more on the impact of lead on wildlife. Because much of the discussion that has been had has been with regard to um, human consumption and then the economics and viability of us actually being able to switch from lead to steel. But I don't think there's been enough discussion about the implications on on wildlife. Now, we know in the UK that, or I would hope that we have a certain understanding that lead has impacted particularly wildfowl because we have laws and regulations in place that restrict the use of lead over waterways or for certain species. Um, but you not only hunt, you also keep birds of prey. So maybe you could expand on that a little bit and explain how the toxicity works and how important it is to keep lead out of the system of raptors in particular? Oh, certainly, I'll, I'll, I will give it my best. I mean, obviously, um, we spoke a little while ago with uh, Chris Parrish from um, the uh, Peregrine Fund who is heading up um, one of the sides of the uh, condor programs and they're, they're recapturing um, condors and treating them for lead every year. Um, and, and with that, we were getting some scary statistics. And when we were speaking about it, it was quite interesting because when we, we actually put that out, um, everybody really sort of jumped on it um, or everybody from the UK that, that's pro shooting. And, and obviously, I'm, I'm from a, a shooting and hunting background. Um, you know, and I, I'm as pro shooting as you can get. But um, there was a lot of uh, upset people because they see that we're giving something away. Um, and I think... Yeah, that's that's what we need to sort of get our heads around that we're not giving it away. We're just trying to shift and we're trying to accommodate and and really improve um, our our status um, as people that are that have got a vested interest in the countryside and the wildlife within it. Um, and I think that's where people are, are missing the trick because yeah, we are we do pride ourselves um, within the shooting communities as as, as being um, stewards of the countryside. Um, and of of being able to conserve, and you know, obviously, there's been some massive conservation um, efforts throughout history that have been formulated and started by the hunting communities and, and certain individuals within hunting. And I don't think that changes any you know any anywhere from today. I mean, we we need to be at the forefront of looking after the wildlife that we've got. Um, and and if there are options out there. 
that allow allow us to have a um, a cleaner outlook um, that allow us to to shift away from something that is at the end of the day um, a toxic substance. Then we've got we've got the ability to do it. We've got the time to do it, and I think you know really five years is is plenty of time. Um, and I really think that we should we should be embracing it with open arms because we do see with as you say with with a lot of wildfowl um, and with a, a lot of raptors um, that obviously the ingestion of lead does cause immense problems with them. And I think one of the one of the major things that cropped up when we were talking or when I was talking with Chris Parrish um, when uh, yeah, we were discussing lead with him um, from the the public comments were. Well, yeah, you're not seeing hundreds of birds of prey laying dead everywhere. They're not dropping off their perches, and unfortunately, it's not as simple as that. Yeah, there is with the lead ingestion. It's not just um, a case that that it proves fatal with with everything that ingests it. Um, it depends at uh, how much they ingest, um, how you know how it affects them. Um, again, you know the the, the sort of um, it can affect them in slightly individual ways depending on the species as well. But it, as I say, it's not just a it's not just a case of fatalities. It's a case that if you're um, exposing um, the animals to lead, they've got that lead running through their 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 blood system. They will be depositing it um, as calcium within their bones as well, um, which can then uh, that when they when they require calcium to lay eggs, they use that lead um, stored in their stored in their bones to um, to create their eggs. So, and then obviously, yeah, we've got we've got issues with uh, soft shelled eggs or um, eggs that are not properly formed. Um, and then again, you know, what uh, what harm is that then causing to the embryos inside as well? You might not be seeing physically dead birds, but their ability to recruit new birds into the population uh, diminishes and it's not i mean it's not just it's not just recruitment um you're you're affecting um how those birds are performing in the world so you know we are birds of prey generally have a 70 percent attrition rate in their first year um because it's a hard hard old world out there um and by them ingesting small amounts of lead then that you know that that will also or could could also affect their survivability their um the possibilities of them being able to make it through the winters you know if they they've only got to be a small percentage of their top performance um and that that will have a massive effect so as a as somebody who keeps birds of prey you're feeding them meat all the time how concerned are you about lead because i think that's a that should be a fairly telling question as to the potential impact on these birds, if I ask that to someone who cares deeply about the, those animals in your care, again, I, th- I think it's something for me. I will not feed anything that has been shot anymore. Um, I will not use any um, any shot pigeons. I won't use um, any um, any rabbits or anything like that. Even down to the extent that if I catch rabbits with um, my hawks, or I catch hares, or I catch pheasants. I won't actually um, allow the birds to feed up on any of the flesh of those. I will um, allow them to have the pluck so they can have the heart and lungs uh, because obviously if, if the, the shot or if the lead has got through to, to those parts of a, an animal or bird, then um, it, would, it would prove pretty fatal for that animal and then we wouldn't be catching it with a hawk. Um, but I, yeah, as I say, I will not allow them to eat any flesh because just for, purely for the fact that if that bird has been pricked, um, and that then a few weeks later I fly it with a hawk and, and catch it 
then there could still be a, a, a couple of number six or number five shot in there. And uh, if I feed up on those, then that could create problems for my hawks further down the line, which has actually happened. You know, I have had problems in the past where birds have um, eaten a prey item that I've caught um, and uh, lots of my friends have had the, had the same as well. And um, it's had massive detrimental effects on some birds and even killed others. So what do you actually see, Roy? I mean, that must be, that must be, it must be a pretty hard thing to... Uh to watch because you're with these birds all the time so what physically do you notice happening and do you have any idea how much lead would have been ingested by these birds are we talking about very small quantities incredibly small um certain birds certain birds are more susceptible to digesting and, and absorbing the lead than others um generally eagles condors and things like that tend to be um more efficient at at dissolving the lead and um and 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 you know therefore they're more at risk some of the falcons can and i know but yeah for, for many years people used to feed feed shot pigeons to their peregrines um and if yeah it would give me it would give me the shivers to do that now but um you know they they used to get away with it time after time because um obviously their their system their digestive system is not as effective um as absorbing it but you know so it, it it can it can depend on the bird but does just because it hasn't affected them um from a, a physical standpoint that we can see doesn't doesn't necessarily mean as we just discussed that it's not affecting them um on a uh, you know, a deeper level um and some of the some of the things you do see uh, with birds of prey when they are affected with lead is you'll see um very pale mucous membranes um then you can start to see them going off their legs a little bit they'll sort of sit down on their hocks a bit um and then in the later stages you'll see them stargazing so you'll you'll see them you know kicking up their head and looking back um in a you know when it when it's the uh, when it's progressing into their system and as i say it can it can be literally one shot or a fragment of a bullet um so again it's phenomenal uh, how many or how how far the lead will travel from a um a frangible rifle bullet when you shoot a deer or you shoot a rabbit or anything like that. So again, I've stopped feeding. Um, I've stopped feeding any carcasses that we're shooting to, uh, to any of my birds. Yeah. We, we eat, we eat it. Um, but I won't, I will not feed it to the birds just because it's, yeah, it does. You, or you're always running the risk of, um, a slight fragment of lead getting through. This story has not just been confined to the shooting press, however. Here is Professor Debbie Payne from Cambridge University speaking on BBC Science Today with Adam Rutherford, explaining how lead affects birds. And birds like wildfowl, so ducks, swans and geese, but also a lot of terrestrial birds, will ingest those spent lead gunshot from the environment, thinking that they're either grit or food. And those birds ingest grit, it's retained in a very muscular part of their stomach called the gizzard and it's used to help grind up food because they don't have teeth. So the lead is ground up, dissolved and absorbed into the bloodstream and you then get very elevated lead concentrations and that's estimated to kill about 75,000 wildfowl in the UK every year and cause considerable suffering for about three times that. So for birds, it's a much bigger problem in terms of the exposure that they get and the effects than it is for humans, where we're exposed to much lower levels and the effects tend to be sublethal and very, you know, minor compared to the mortality that we get in birds. I wanted to dig into the science and chemistry a little bit more for myself. So I tracked down Tom Dutton, an avian specialist vet. I think the best place to start this conversation is to 
help me, but also the listeners, understand how lead toxicity works and why is it a problem? How does it affect animals? So, so certainly from what I see, um, mainly treating birds, both wild and captive, and, and birds certainly seem to be more susceptible to lead toxicity than mammals. Um, first of all, they've got to ingest it. And um, certain birds are more likely to come into contact with lead than um, other species. So particularly waterfowl, which I think everyone's fairly aware of, because they ingest lead um, or lead particles, um, thinking it's grit, which is an important part of their digestion. Um, But then also the... um, the raptors and the scavenging birds um, who ingest lead um, as part of their their normal diet if they scavenge on carcasses that are contaminated. Um, so then the lead gets absorbed um, and that happens um, from the digestive tract. Um, and it, the, the amount of lead being absorbed really depends in what form it is, the size of the particles um, and the acidity of the stomach. And then once it's in the bloodstream, it goes to all the different tissues in the body where lead can have an effect and and lead is particularly toxic as an organism because it can have an effect on so many different body tissues so from the blood um preventing normal hemoglobin um formation and hemoglobin is really important in carrying oxygen to issues in the nervous system in particular with the immune system reproduction the list goes on and on what would be good is if we can uh, build an understanding of the the digestion in different birds. So you mentioned waterfowl there. Maybe just to expand on that a little bit because the the way that they digest their food, it passes through a gizzard which grinds up whatever it is that they've intaken. Uh, absolutely. So they've got a very specialized digestive system. So most birds that eat predominantly grain seed type food plant-based matter to break that down effectively and to allow them to digest it they've got to um, grind it up so they've got two parts of their stomach they've got the first part which is the what we term a proventriculus which secretes enzymes a bit like our stomach and then they've got this second part which is fairly unique called a gizzard or a ventriculus and that's really muscular powerful stomach and to help with the grinding um they ingest grit which creates a a rough surface within that um, muscular stomach to then um, grind their food up into smaller particles. And I think a lot of people will understand that if something's smaller, um, it absorbs more effectively and more efficiently. And so they end up ingesting. So they naturally pick up grit throughout their life. And and when they're scavenging and picking up this grit material, either from the mud, bottom of water courses, then they end up accidentally picking up any lead particles that may be in there. Okay, so I think that's fairly easy to understand. People can imagine uh, someone shooting on the foreshore over waterways and this, this spraying of shotgun pellets, which should be at some sort of intended quarry. Uh, all of those pellets, if you do indeed hit what you're shooting at, won't be in the body of the animal that you've been targeting, and so they f- fall to the ground. And this is how uh, certain species, uh, like waterfowl, are picking them up. What about in... What about in raptors? Um, Obviously, raptors are a protected species, so no one should be shooting at them. So how are they picking up lead 
from other animals. So this is a secondary poisoning. It depends on the species of raptor. So the, the raptor species that are most susceptible to lead toxicity are ones that have scavenging as part of their diet. So in the in the UK, that's going to be particularly your kites, your buzzards, your eagles, um, but not exclusively, but, but, but particularly those species have, have more scavenging um, as, as part of their feeding strategies. Um, so they will come across either wounded animals that may have been non-fatally shot, uh, which, which obviously occurs occasionally, um, or they may come across dead carcasses that still have shot, or may come across um, gralic material um, that's containing shot, and then it gets ingested. So they will feed on that uh, opportunistically, and then they'll ingest either lead shot if it's um, if it's from shotgun shot prey, or potentially bullet fragments if it was from rifle shot prey. And are some birds more susceptible to lead poisoning than others? Well, there's there's a thought that certainly eagles and vultures seem to be overrepresented, and that's certainly part of partly because of their feeding strategies, but also um, there is certainly one theory that because they eat a lot of dead prey, because um, they scavenge, um, they have a very acidic stomach, which allows them to cope with potentially ingesting food that's got a higher bacterial content and with a more acidic stomach um they will therefore digest and dissolve the lead more quickly than a raptor species like an owl which has a a slightly less acidic stomach okay so the theory and the science that we understand when it comes to lead ingestion is there but what's the reality on the ground? It's all fine us talking about, well, this would be a terrible thing if it happens. But what evidence actually exists that in the real world, it's a problem? And it's a problem because of lead propelled into the environment from the activity of shooting. Yeah, so there's quite a few um, different research projects worldwide looking into this. So in the UK, there's been a number of studies in red kites, um, which have shown that when you're looking at red kite wildlife casualties, so these are birds that um, have been brought into rehab centres, veterinary facilities, injured or sick, um, that when they've tested those birds, um, one in seven um, in, in one of the most recent studies had elevated lead levels that would lead to toxicity. Um, and that actually 35% had... Um, lead levels that were increased compared to what would be normal so these may not be toxic levels of lead at this stage but that's that's one in three birds actually had a an increased exposure to lead beyond what would be background levels um and when they've looked under um nest sites of of red kites and they have analyzed the castings so the castings are the um non-digestible items of prey which are ejected two percent of those castings um contained lead material and, and lead shot most commonly so that that shows that that one of our own domestic raptor species is is really heavily affected. And then when you go out of the UK, there's been some really good research um, in, in Europe, particularly um, in Swiss in Swiss Alps, um, where they had um, they were looking at golden eagles that 
um, presented with injuries. A lot of those were things like pylon strikes or um, uh, other traumatic injuries, a couple of bears that were illegally poisoned and they looked at those lead levels and 14 out of 46 birds had lead levels which were um, consistent with toxicosis so so high lead levels and what's very interesting these birds that have high lead levels even if it's a sub-lethal level they're going to be more likely to suffer other injuries and illness um, such as things like um, pylon strikes or um, flying into wind turbines, these sorts of injuries, because of the um, nervous effects that the lead has on their body. Oh, interesting. So the, the neurological damage that the lead is doing from as a result of the toxicity burden is affecting them in the ways that they potentially will come into other types of harm which may kill them. Exactly, because it'll affect their immune system, but it'll also affect their um, their avoidance um, when flying, and, and yeah, they're just going to be more susceptible to injury and illness because of sublethal lead toxicities. And I, I think from my point of view, I work in one part of the UK, and just in my hospital, I see cases month by month where we are treating um, lead toxicity in both wild and captive birds. And with the captive birds, that's that's captive-owned falconry birds. Um, and so it's not just something that happens on paper. It's not just something that scientists say can happen. This is something that's real and something that we treat on a regular basis. And for me, these are, these are needless wildlife casualties. These things shouldn't be happening. They're, they're not they're not um they're, they're completely avoidable um by not using lead ammunition and um, if there are viable alternatives then we should be using them we will expand on this a little later but i was keen to get tom's opinion on the use of lead rifle ammunition and understand why he thinks that this was less of an immediate issue at the moment from my understanding from bass game wildlife conservation trust is obviously we're moving moving away from using lead shotgun ammunition obviously rifle ammunition is another potential source of lead but but one that's potentially more controllable because um the main risk of exposure to rifle ammunition for birds is from what i would term mismanagement of of gralic material and um mismanagement of of quarry and, and for me that is leaving quarry in the field leaving items of of gralic or of um pluck that that could then get into contact with wild birds so for 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 hunters that that um, shoot deer, for example, simple steps such as burying the gralic and, and managing any potentially lead contaminated tissue effectively, I think is really important and and will prevent any unnecessary toxicities. So, so in the interim, when it comes to rifle ammunition, we have the chance now, given how the awareness has been raised of the issues of lead in the environment and how they affect wildlife to put in place uh, new best practice guidance with the use of uh, lead-based rifle ammunition in a way that maybe we won't need to see a full phasing out? Do you think, do you think it w- potentially is enough to just change how we act in the field when it comes to shooting lead in rifles? Absolutely. I think, um, I think rifle shooting is, 
there's far less or there's very minimal environmental contamination of lead with rifle shooting uh, when when it's being used as as a tool for hunting so therefore it's it's just the management of of yeah of the of the relic of waste product um and yeah not being irresponsible with how that's done and and if that is done then hopefully the, the need to phase out lead rifle ammunition won't be there in the same way that it is to phase out lead shotgun ammunition because the, it's the shotgun ammunition at the moment which i i see is is far harder to manage because there is just so much more environmental contamination um whereas with the rifle ammunition that's not the case you can control where that ends up and where that goes much more effectively before i wrapped up my conversation with tom i wanted to paint a clearer picture of just how much lead is required to cause a problem. I was shocked by what he had to say. So when you're talking about um, sort of toxic doses, so how much lead do actually animals need to ingest? This has been something that lots of people have tried to research, what actually is a toxic dose of lead to animals and various numbers have have been put forward. For examples, a chronic exposure of two milligrams per kilo um, of lead per day. So for your average mallard, that's yeah, not much more than a fiftieth of a number six shot. Um, so you're talking very small amounts of of lead over a chronic period of time will cause toxicity. For eagles, a number that's been put forward is forty milligrams um, per kilo of eagle um, of lead as a, as a toxic dose. So if your average eagle's weighing three five kilos, you're only talking about a couple of number six shot um, as a potentially toxic dose. So you're not talking about massive ingestion over huge periods of time. You're talking about relatively small amounts of lead can have a real severe knock-on effect. Now, that is interesting. The bottom line is, when it comes to the science and what we understand today, it is unequivocal. We understand that lead, lead toxicity leads to the death of animals. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's been that's been proven and it's seen time and time again. And if you speak to to any vet who treats um, particularly wild birds, um, they will say the same thing. They see cases day on day and um, and that, yeah, they're, they're avoidable, avoidable cases. So the question is, how do we get this information across to the shooting community? I put this to Roy. Do you think that we need to disseminate the science that exists with regard to uh, the toxicity burden in wildlife better? Or do you think we've done a poor job of that? And that is the underlying reason why there are a fairly large proportion of the shooting community in the UK that are resistant to this change and shift because they don't fully understand the impact of their actions. I think I think partially they don't they don't fully understand. It may be also that they don't want to understand because, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm the same as as many other people. The thought of having to change something that I'm happy with, I know how it works. Um, I'm happy with my lead. I know I know where I'm shooting. I know what I'm doing with it. Um, the thought of then having to to change over and practice again and go through the process of maybe relearning your leads a little bit, maybe adjusting how high you're shooting your birds, um, you know, what, you know, and, and relearning those capabilities is, is something that, you know, after I've been shooting my whole life since I was a small boy, 
um, and I'm in my my mid forties now. You know, it's something that I don't I don't relish, but it's something that we're going to have to we're going to have to face and we're going to have to um, to overcome. And I think I think that's really where it where it stems from is you know people are happy with what they've got. Um, and nobody likes change. As Roy points out, this shift away from lead will mean a change for shooting in the UK, but we will not be alone. Many countries around the world have already moved away from lead, and as vintage gun dealer Diggory Haydock discussed with me, we can learn from this. Correct. Now, we've got, we can look at the experiences of countries like Denmark, Holland, um, Sweden, Norway, um, Belgium, you know, places where uh, lead bans were introduced. So I take on board the fact that Norway re- removed their ban on lead shot recently, but all the others have maintained it. Um, some, some of them, I, I know shooters in, in, in Denmark and Belgium and Holland who've been shooting for years with steel shot in old English guns. And funnily enough, you know, even Game Ball produced a 67mm cased, you know, two and a half inch chamber friendly uh, steel shot cartridge, which they sell in um, in Denmark, but they don't sell in England. Here in the UK, you can only buy 70 millimeter, even standard steel shot cartridges. Um, now, the, the question about the ef- efficiency of these various metals as projectiles, there is no doubt at all that lead is the best projectile if you're looking at it purely from a ballistic point of view. Um, if you add in the the ease of making lead into perfect spheres using the shot drop tower um, and you look at the, the the capacity that lead has to hold energy downrange also its malleability when it hits a target to expand on impact and impact and impart its uh, energy into the bird rather than passing right through it uh, that produces clean kills because you don't want your shot to go right through your quarry, you want it to stay there and shock it to death rather than inflict a lethal wound that will make it fall down and die you know, two or 300 yards from where you're standing where it's hard to retrieve. Um, so, no, ballistically lead is the best uh, ammunition, which is why we've used it for two or 300 years. Um, but that's no longer the only consideration. So we, we have to look at the ballistics and we have to do a lot more ballistic testing because... If we look at the ballistic um, data available to us that goes right back through shotgunning, it's all been done with lead. It's all been looking at how powders push lead. It's been looked at how you obdurate lead going down barrels. It's looked at the crushing effect of the pressure on the bottom of the shot column, um, the, uh, the effect of lead going through forcing uh, cones from the chamber into the bore, the effect of lead going through choke cones from the bore into the choke section, uh, the tendency of the of lead to spread out um, at different ranges, having gone through different chokes, having been pushed at different speeds, um, and the capability of lead in terms of holding up its penetration with a given shot size at given ranges and the amount of spread you get with a given choke at a given range, we're going to have to throw all this in the bin and start again testing with steel because you know, the old, in, order to, um, in order to have equal um, energy carried at 40 yards, 
um, looking at a number six lead shot, you're going to need a number four steel shot. But a number four steel shot might be the same weight as a number six lead shot, but it's also bigger, so it will slow down faster because it beats more air resistance. Uh, but steel seems to um, seems to pattern tighter for any given choke than lead does because it doesn't deform. So when people talk about not using steel for a choke tighter than half because it may damage your barrels, well, we may actually be looking at um, data that suggests that um, a, a given ounce of steel going through a half choke is producing a tighter pattern than the same the same charge of lead uh, going through a three quarter choke. We need to do all this um, data, gather all this data, and do this testing in order to come out with clear scientific results. And the, I think this is part of what the cartridge manufacturing industry have warned us about that. You know, this, there's a lot of work ahead of us before we get to the point where we can say, look, if you're used to shooting lead, here's, um, here's a full smorgasbord of alternative um, ammunition that you can, you can pick this up instead of that and know that you're basically getting the same performance. Um, there's, there's a lot of data that we need to pick up. Um, but there's no doubt about it. You know, the physics is there. Lead is, lead is the best uh, projectile. Um, Anecdotal evidence from hunters suggests that um, steel can be effective, particularly within certain ranges, you know, closer ranges, but the, the tendency of steel shot to pass through the birds can lead to more, uh, more crippled birds falling you know, beyond your normal pickup range. And also birds that are shot within normal ranges, um, say within 25 yards, being smashed beyond what is palatable to eat because the, the steel pattern's that much tighter and, and smashes the meat up. So there are, there are definitely problems with, with steel. Um, of course, the, the, the closest equivalent to lead is bismuth, which, uh, which is only marginally lighter than lead. And I think on a density scale, lead's around 11 and a bit and bismuth nine and a half or something, whereas steel is about seven and a half. Um, so you go up one pellet size of bismuth. Um, bismuth now um, alloyed with tin is, is fairly malleable and, and approximates lead in its behavior. Um, and you don't need to make any adjustments to your guns. You can swap over bismuth for lead and just carry on shooting. The downside of bismuth, of course, is that it's, um, it's a pound a shot as opposed to about 32 pence for a premium lead cartridge. This feels like the perfect time to hear from someone who lives in a country which has already enacted a lead ban. For this, I sought out a previous podcast guest and great friend of mine, David C.P. in Denmark, and asked him his opinion on the reaction to the lead phasing out in the UK. First of all, um, in the times that we're in, I think it's interesting to stop just a second and then if you, all the stuff you said, before about the lead ban, uh, that most people understand it. Some are quite uh, vocal about it. It's too soon. It's the wrong way to do it. Um, it kind of reminds me about the situation we are right now in with a global pandemic and how to handle another catastrophe. Um, and it's a very normal way of reacting to a, a situation where the world is changing, um, is that most people will get it. 
and we will have different ways of handling it. And some people will be extremely vocal and saying, well, why couldn't we just keep doing what we were doing? We were doing really well. Um, so I think uh, no uh, lead shot is not a global pandemic, but um, the, the, the discourse is the same. The, the way that we react is the same. The psychology is the same, that some people are against change and some people uh, can see that we have to change in order to uh, survive. And of course, it will cost something. It will be a problem for many people. Uh, but the alternative is worse. You also always have to look at the alternative. And that's what happened in Denmark. We, um, <laughs> we, we are first movers when it comes to catastrophes these days. Um, and uh, the same thing, maybe, maybe we're just good planners. We saw, we saw this problem coming a mile away. And the, the whole debate was back then, the same as we have right now, that uh, lead shots in birds, in food, in nature, um, we need to uh, we need to get rid of it as much as we can. It, it's not healthy. It's uh, refined lead that you used in shotguns, uh, shotgun ammunition, or uh, that we used to use. Uh, there's no way that's healthy. And if there is a better alternative, then we should try to use that alternative. And that, that was the whole discussion back then. And people said, you can't kill anything with steel, and it's too light, and it doesn't work. Um, the exact same things that you have, uh, the same discussions that you have in, in the UK right now. Uh, and lo and behold, there are still people in Denmark saying that uh, ah, it was much better with lead and it killed a lot better. Nobody really remembers why. And you kind of, I think you can kind of imagine the age group of people who thinks that lead was better. So given that the Danes have lived with a lead ban for so many years, I wondered what we can learn from how they adapted their shooting. David and I dug into this a little bit more. Uh, when I was speaking to Diggory earlier, just before I got on the phone to you, um, he was explaining of, of the need to re-educate in the type of shots that you take and how you use steel shotgun cartridges. You know, everything from the actual size of shot that you're using for hunting um, to the size of chokes that you're using to potentially the range that yeah. it is effective in. This is all knowledge that you guys have lived through and you know that it's possible. And I was saying to him that I think one of the biggest things with this is going to be this process of, of re-education and understanding what's possible. And it might mean that you can't do things that maybe you used to do. Maybe you can't shoot super high birds anymore. I mean, there's a question of whether you should have been in the first place. But but give me 10 hunters and make them make them tell me how do they shoot a bird they will all shoot it 10 maybe 12 maybe 15 different ways because some of them don't really think about what they're doing and then doing it another way and they've been told that they should do this but they're actually doing this um we 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 always improve as hunters we always learn that's that's who we are we always have these ideas and if if you told someone two years ago saying, hey, dude, um, I can teach you to shoot better with your shotgun. Uh, here's some awesome cartridges and here's a new choke. Ah, that's really cool. They do it. Ah, we shoot really well. Ah, that's really nice. What is this? It's steel and it's 
this choke. Oh, okay, that's cool. But if you tell them that you're not allowed to use what you used to use, you have to use this. That's a, that's a different story. It, it's it's uh, that the fact that we have to shoot in a different way. Then then you know some years the barrels have to be uh, x amount of inches. Other years it has to be y amount of inches. We keep changing anyway. Um, the whole the whole thing about changing chokes. I have to admit. I have never changed chokes on my shotguns ever. Never, ever, ever. I do not give a shit. And the reason is, if I just shoot my shotgun and I practice at the ranges where I want to shoot, it works quite well. And if you're that kind of hunter who really enjoys changing chokes and measuring it out and doing all the nerdy stuff, more power to you. It's bloody awesome. Have a great time and you'll have an even better time trying to figure out how to get the perfect spread and the perfect this and the perfect that with your steel shot because you enjoy doing it. It's the reason why you do it. I don't enjoy changing chokes. I don't enjoy um, that little nerdy detail. So I don't do it and it works really well. It's fine. But if you are a competition shot, of course you have to do it, but you do it anyway. There's, there's absolutely no difference in the way that you act today and the way that you act tomorrow if you change from lead to steel. You'll just have another excuse to tell your wife or your husband or your spouse, I'm sorry, I have to go to the shooting range. I really have to practice this. The government told me to do it. Hopefully, David has made shooters feel a little bit better about a future without lead. But how will the industry adapt to this phasing out? And what do new steel cartridges mean for old guns? There is no better person to answer this question than Diggory. Yeah, there are going to be two things. There's going to be um, new guns where manufacturers are going, uh, both gun manufacturers and cartridge manufacturers will need to be saying, look, if you want to go and shoot ducks or pheasants or partridges, here's our new gun, which we're producing for you to shoot these things with steel. And the cartridge manufacturers will be able to say, look, if you team this gun up with these cartridges for this kind of shooting, they'll be a good team and they'll they'll work out what it is that performs well on partridges at 30 yards or pheasants at 40 yards or ducks at 50 yards. Um, the, the, the problem comes with existing guns and particularly with older guns uh, because you're then having to, to, to reverse engineer in a way. Um, you'll be having to try to find ammunition which you can experiment with to work in guns that were designed to be used with lead and you may have to adjust your guns that were designed for use with lead to be more um, comfortable uh, shooting steel. Now with older British guns that's a real problem um, because there's massive variation in, um, in a lot of older guns uh, in terms of the yeah, they can have steep forcing cones which isn't good for, for steel they can be very tight in the bore. I mean, 0.729 of an inch is your uh, standard 12 bore uh, bore size. Whereas, you know, a lot of Victorian guns were made with guns that were 0.719 or 0.710 in the bore. Um, and then you've got your choke, which would act off the bore and be a further constriction. You've also got the fact that a lot of old English guns have been lapped out to um, to remove pitting, so they may be wider in the bore. 
Um, they may not be concentric in the bore anymore. They may have pits. They may have rivels. They may have bulges. All of these things, um, you know, are, are unknowns in terms of how they, they will react with a, a closed cut wad of fairly uh, immalleable steel going down, going through it, and what sort of effect that will have on the gun. Now, the advice being given by the proof houses by the Gun Trade Association at the moment is, I think. Um, rushed and I also think uh, slightly problematic although I understand what they're trying to do they're trying to be helpful but the uh, the system we have of proof is what is what it says on the tin you have to prove that a gun you want to sell is safe to shoot with a certain load but what the gun what the proof houses seem to be saying now is that if you have a 70 millimeter chambered English gun um, which is uh, standard 70 millimeter nitro proof post 1954, uh, and the barrels are quote in good condition. Um, you should be able to shoot standard steel, not superior steel loads in it. Now this isn't proof; this is supposition, because these guns have not been tested with um, steel loads. So the, the whole concept of proof, which is you must prove that your gun is safe with this ammunition has been put aside for the first time since the 1600s. Uh, maybe you could expand a little bit on that because one of the discussions that I've seen people have is uh, when um, those who have supported this shift to phase out lead have highlighted other countries, as indeed you did um, earlier in our discussion, it is brought up that they have different rules with regard to proofing their guns and often operate at higher pressures, higher pressures be, um, allowing the greater velocity of steel shot to be fired uh, and make up for some of the um, the pitfalls in potentially it being you know, lighter ammunition depending on how you've um, dropped down shot size. What is the What is the reality of that? Or maybe you could just explain that to people who don't fully understand it. Well... Um, different countries are governed by different systems. So, for example, the Americans use a SAMI system, and we we we're, we um, we are linked to the CIP system, as are a number of countries. Uh, that there are variations, although the whole point of it is that it's supposed to be leading towards standardisation. Um, I don't fully understand all the nuances of the differences between the two systems. But where it comes to, um, to the, a lot of the technology for, for new loads, they're working, with, they're working with new guns that are being superior steel proofed to much higher pressures uh, than we're used to for exactly the reason you said. They want to push this stuff faster to make up for its lightness um, in order to maintain momentum. Although the physics behind that is slightly problematic if you look at how it, it's worked on with lead. Um, you know, the old, uh, a lot of the old, the, the long range loads that people used when they were de developing efficient ballistics for lead was a relatively low um, velocity, uh, slow burning powder, pushing, rather gently pushing the, 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 the projectiles in order to uh, maintain uh, pattern and energy downrange. Um, there, there quite a lot of tests showed back in the 1930s that um, if you push something too fast, you can blow the pattern. And also, if you push it too fast, it comes out of the muzzles very fast, but then 
the um, the wind resistance to it slows it down so that by the time you're out at 30 yards, it's actually not traveling <laughs> very much faster than if you start it a couple of thousand feet per second slower. Um, and it's not patterning as well. So it's more, it's more complex than, than you would think it, it is. And I'm not a proper um, ballistician. I mean, I've read, I've read a lot about it, but it's not my academic discipline. So there are better qualified people out there to talk about the, um, the, the, the forensic ballistics of these things than me. And perhaps people, some of the people at the cartridge companies who are at the cutting edge of this would be really worth sitting down with and talking through the science with them. I wanted to ask Roy a little bit more about the environmental impact of lead, but it quickly took us away to an uncomfortable truth within the shooting community. The lack of compliance with current regulations limiting the use of lead ammunition. What other examples from around the world are there where this change and shift away from lead have already taken place on the back of negative consequences to uh, the environment and wildlife. I mean, the California condor you've already mentioned is is quite a good example, I suppose, of that. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's lots of different studies, um, you know, that are, that are out there now on you know, loons to ducks to all, all sorts of species um, that are, that are being affected um, by lead. And it, and you know, I think I think this is something that again does need to be highlighted. It's not you know me harping on about raptors. Ra- I know raptors are not necessarily. Um, you know the uh, the closest thing to a shooting man's heart, but um, you know it is affecting it is affecting a host of other wildlife. Um, and again, you know there's there's certain studies out there that is, is probably worth um, you know publishing on the back of your podcast so people can have a, just have a read through and have a look through. Um, and I think you know that's another thing is you know although we've been required to shoot with um, non toxic shot for wildfowling etc. Yeah, I do. You know, I mean, obviously, you see it in the field. There, there is a lot of non-compliance, or has been a lot of non-compliance. And you know, I think again, as a as a community, we yeah, we shouldn't just shrug our shoulders with it. We 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 need to embrace it, and we need to tackle it. This acknowledgement of the lack of compliance is not just coming from the shooting community. After praise for the lead phase-out announcement, Debbie Payne on Inside Science also highlighted this issue. I think it's extremely welcome. I've been talking to shooting organisations for about 35 years now and I've heard many times that the writing's on the wall for lead ammunition but at least it is on the wall now and it's not in invisible ink which is absolutely brilliant. So I really welcome that commitment. But one of the things that we really need is a proper plan and campaign to highlight the problem and the solution. So social science shows that we're very unlikely to have the commitment of the shooting organisations delivered unless we have that proper campaign. And sadly, it's been shown many, many times that voluntary agreements and partial regulations against the use of lead ammunition, lead gunshot or or other types of ammunition aren't effective. So even with the 1999 ban for shooting wildfowl in England, there was a voluntary ban in advance and that didn't work, which is why regulation was introduced. The regulation we now have is only partial. It's only for some species in some places, and that doesn't work. (laughs) Whereas in Denmark, where there is regulation for all shooting using lead gunshot, there's incredibly high compliance. Always a man to say it as it is. I asked David in Denmark what he thinks of this attitude. What would you say to the shooting community who look or view this ban as 
well, you know what? Screw you. I'm going to carry on well, doing then, what I've always yeah. done. Let, let me put it into perspective. Right now, I'm in the middle of a nationwide curfew in Denmark because of some stupid virus that is caused by people who are sick or who are, um, who thought that they weren't sick, who traveled anyway, who broke curfew, who did stupid things. Even though they knew that everybody said, no, you're not allowed to do it, they did it anyway. And what we're looking at right now is we had a voluntary curfew and because people kept hanging out in cafes and parks and uh, going to parties and playing beer pong, um, we will probably have a nationwide lockdown like they had in Italy because some people don't understand that the reason why we make soft rules is because we expect you to not be assholes and actually live up to them. But if you don't live up to them, then we'll have to make stricter rules. And every single one of these guys who did not adhere to the law, it's actually your fault that the lead ban is coming. It's your fault. It's not the government. It's not Basque. It's not everybody else. It's your fault. There was a rule that said you should not do this. And you did it anyway. Then you have to make stricter rules. If people didn't use um firearms for illegal purposes in Denmark, we would not have strict firearm laws. That's the reason why you can go down and buy a bow in any sporting goods store. You don't need um, a license. You don't need anything. You can buy a bow that can shoot an elephant. You can shoot through a car. Um, you can buy sharp arrowheads because no one ever did a bank robbery with a hunting bow. The, the second somebody does something that's stupid, we're going to have a law that says, you're not allowed to buy a hunting bow. That's the reason why you can't have a crossbow in Denmark. It's because some asshole shot his lover with a crossbow. So if you sit out there right now, if you listen to this and say, ah, oh, this guy's wrong and I'm allowed to do this, I'm allowed to do you brought this on yourself, dude. This is all you. You owe everybody else a beer. Um, and and the, the, the only thing is that we still get... I have to I have to question a little bit is that we still get uh, when you have scannings of birds in Denmark, sometimes they say, ah, oh, but we found lead. Um, water birds don't necessarily live in the same country. They will also fly over different countries and different countries have different hunting seasons. So a goose that was somebody took a pot shot at a goose in um, Russia. And somebody killed it in Denmark. And it's end, and there's half lead, half steel. That will mess up our statistics. So that's yeah, something that's that we're struggling consideration with. consideration to point end. out. Yeah, it's something that we have to think about. But but honestly, if, if it's in 90% of the birds that you scan, unless you have a lot of Russians in your backyard, it's, it's probably not all of them. I don't know if we have any Russian listeners, but if we do, uh, I mean, we might get some complaints now that we're suggesting that they're the ones well, it, uh, pumping birds. And, and guys, I'm sure that if if Russians go to Scotland and shoot, I'm sure you adhere to all the rules and you keep it tight. It's just the fact that you can use lead <laughs> in Russia. So they're not doing anything illegal. There's nothing wrong with what the Russians are doing according to Russian law. Now that we have a Danish perspective, I wanted to know what Roy's opinion was and how we can ensure a paradigm shift in attitudes. How do we make sure that with the voluntary um, agreement and drive that we currently have to phase it out, uh, that people actually take this on board? Because clearly, even though 
we have very strict and defined laws right now, people are not abiding by them. No, and I think I think the only way that we can do that is through education. Um, yeah, you know, is through education and with with the shooting groups, the shooting communities wanting to embrace it and wanting to to do their bit. Um, you know, wanting to to push forward with a, a conservation hat on. Um, and I, and I think you know that that is really for me it's nonsensical not to because everything yeah everything that we do is about preserving um or trying to preserve the our quarry species trying to preserve the habitats that our quarry species live within um and trying to preserve the rest of the flora and fauna that that benefit as a result of that you know and i even if i wasn't from a um a shooting background then i would still see the major benefits that that shooting give you know with the cover strips um with the 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 margins that are available um and with the if you if you go into if you go into a cover if you go into a wood if you go into a cover strip um then the the amount of wildlife there compared to um just a a piece of uh, agricultural land or a bare piece of agricultural ground it's it's chalk and cheese it's light and day the differences um you know so again these are the things that we need to embrace these are the things that we need to push forward with um and we do need to to put our conservation hats on and i just hope that if we can allow people the the understanding and people come on board then it's not going to be a case of, of forcing people to do it it's going to be a case that everybody's going to want to do it and it will be it will be seen to be within our ranks if somebody's not um, going forward and not doing the right thing. Then, you know, people within our or through peer pressure, they're going to feel that they need to do so. Um, and I think I think really that's the only way it's going to happen. Diggory had something to add to this, pointing the finger quite firmly in one direction. And I think the non-compliance of quite a lot of commercial duck shoots uh, in the existing lead ban for shooting ducks in England and Wales or for shooting over wetlands in Scotland um, indicates that there's probably not a great deal of appetite among the authorities for accepting that shooters are a self-governing law-abiding community. Uh, 70% of ducks tested in England for, for for discovery of what they were shot with showed that they were shot with lead despite the fact that being illegal Um, and I think 20 years of non-compliance has brought by by particularly I think commercial duck shoots where you've got people paying significantly less to shoot 300 ducks and they would shoot to pay pay to shoot 300 pheasants um, and approaching it with that mindset they're also too mean to buy the expensive ammunition to shoot them with and assuming that it will be somebody else's problem, well, it's. I've been telling people for 20 years that this will become all our problem, and it is. There is no question that those who have supported the phasing out of lead have taken considerable criticism across the industry. As a very public figure, I wanted to know from Roy how he felt about the response. You know, as somebody who is clearly supportive of this, um, this change away from lead, 
What is and you're someone who has in particularly in the UK field sports community. You're someone that has, uh, I was going to say, a recognizable face, recognizable face and voice because you're on <laughs> field sports channel, you know, quite frequently. What has been the biggest criticism to you that you've felt um, from the shooting community? I mean, I've uh, taken a little bit of that as well because I'm, you know, I, I'm, I pretty much I sit with you on this. In fact, we have discussed this around the table at Glen Ogle. Uh, I think over the last two years, it had let, the use of lead has come up, but it wasn't, you know, quite as um, in the public domain as it has been in the last few weeks where have the criticisms been pointed with regard to your viewpoint on it? From going out there and, and now sort of heading, yeah, heading in the direction that we are heading and coming out and yeah, with, with certain viewpoints in the, in the public domain. Um, it's not, I mean, it's not something new for me. I mean, I've been, I've been trying um, non-toxic uh, rifle ammunition for some time and it's something that I'm very keen to champion and, and push forward as well. Although we're not, you know, for, with with what we're talking about at the moment, is not affecting rifle am, for rifle ammunition. I mean, personally, I would like to see um, a push from our shooting organisations and from the, the from the, the our general shooting communities to yeah going forward and using um, lead free or non toxic um, rifle ammunition as well. So it's something. It's something that. Yeah, but I think people have been aware of that. Uh, it's something that I've been keen on um, for for some time, um, but it's actually surprised me just how much um, opposition from our own ranks there has been to changing over. Um, and it, it's quite, you know, it's quite shocking reading some of the comments um, and seeing some of the, the 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 viewpoints that are out there. Um, and a little bit disappointing, to be fair, because yeah, I would have hoped that everybody involved within the shooting communities, within the shooting sports, within the hunting shooting communities, would be embracing anything that can improve our um, our public face, that can improve conservation. Um, but it just seems at the moment that there's so many people there that are are so entrenched and ensconced with their viewpoints that they're not willing to open up to to the science and to accept yeah the the, the reasons behind it. Um, and I think I think yeah we can't we can't be like that. We we are the world we are living in is a very different place than we were. Uh, 10 years ago 20 years ago you know it's it's changing rapidly with uh, with media with social media as well you know everything's every people's opinions can be uh, manipulated very very quickly by um those are detractors um which they are and I, and you know we are, we are going to have to be more reactive as a community we can't rest on our laurels we can't just sit back um on our um our traditional high seats and um not as in yeah not as in high seats sitting <laughs> there you, yeah. yeah but um you know we we can't we can't we can't just sit back and and just let things carry on um we have to i think we you know we we need to push forward we need to be a lot more proactive um with with showing and and sharing what we do um and yeah which is which is again what we've been doing with the field sports and um and you've been doing as well you yeah, know for the past few years so it's it's something it's something that we're trying to push forward with um but i th- i just think that yeah it's a shame when the, the whole community is not embracing it for for a positive what do you say to those 
loud voices which uh, are trying to suggest that you know this is the this is could be the end of shooting uh, and by that what is cited is the fact that the ammunition manufacturers simply can't supply the demand I can't I honestly it's, it's the same as any any commerce um, any business if you want to survive then you've got to adapt and change Um and it, unfortunately, if it's the case that the, the the companies out there are not able to, there will be other companies and there will be other manufacturers out there that will will come up and and produce for us. So, yeah, you know, it's going to be a, it may be a painful change, it may be an expensive change, um, but without change, I can't see a future for us anyway. Um, yeah, you know, we we are going to have to be very very careful with what we do. Um, and I think we're going to to have to um, ensure that you know future generations are able to go out and enjoy shooting and able to go out and enjoy hunting. Um, these are the, the the slightly painful decisions that we're going to have to make and and adopt now. Because let's you know let's let's be truthful about this. If we don't adopt these um, changes and if we don't look forward and if we don't start adjusting our mindset a little bit. Um, these changes are going to happen, but we we are not going to have any control of them. They will just be enforced upon us. David CP also has a few things to say about the mindset of hunters. And the nice thing about the gun industry is that if there is a market, if there is a de- demand, there will be a supply. Yeah, that's my and opinion if there of it. Isn't, and if there isn't a demand, they will create the demand by creating some fun new caliber that we all really want i don't think anybody really complained that just as a thought example we were talking about that you had to change your jokes you have to think about your shot in a different way if i came and told you okay i made this awesome caliber let's just call it a 6.5 creedmoor you know what's going to happen you're going to buy a new barrel you're going to go out and check the ballistics you're going to learn how to shoot it and you're going to enjoy it all the way that's because we, that's who we are. We enjoy a new challenge. If I told you that you are only allowed to shoot this new caliber called 6.5 Creedmoor, then you'd be like, me, 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 and I don't want to do that, and I want to shoot my old caliber, and it's much better. But honestly, it's just funny that that's the psychology of these things, and that's, that's what I've been talking about this whole session is you. It's all about the psychology of uh, group thinking and how we think and how we think as hunters and as pretty conservative people. And, and I've, I understand that and respect that. I am not in the slightest bit concerned about the primary debate which has happened in the last few weeks, which is, well, we won't have enough cartridges if we're to, due to phase it out in the next five years and the cartridge manufacturers and saying they can't do it. Because as far as I'm concerned, the money will talk. And if the demand's there, they will find a way. Because guess what? They it's won't funny. have a business. Five years, ago, five, years, five years ago, people said, oh, there will never be enough electrical cars. We will never do it. It's never going to happen. There's never going to be enough electrical cars. We can never make a self-driving car. We can never do this. You will never have an electrical car that actually looks like something that you want to buy. Now, there's not a single one of the big ones who hasn't come up with five or six models that they probably had in their draw anyway, because the business of business is business. And if you are in the business of making things that go boom, then that's what you do. And then you either you do something else 
you change the presses, you change the machines, you make your investment and you produce something more, or you go out of business. That's it. Um, and if you don't believe me, then look at the uh, look at the gun industry in Europe. Some decided that you had the classic British guns. It was beautiful. They were great, great handiwork. Some of them survived by changing with the times. Some of them didn't. But you can still buy a British-made shotgun today, even though it makes absolutely no sense from an economical point of view. But they're no, not, beautiful. You're not doing it for way. economics. No, you're doing it because you're doing it because you can, and because it's great, and because you own a piece of art. It it's not it's not logic, but it's it's amazing and it's fantastic. But if you can produce a shotgun in Britain at those prices, there will probably be people around who also think, well, we can probably produce shotgun shells in that number as well, because that's that's not as hard. It it really isn't. It's just a question of numbers. Let's jump back now into the conversation with Roy. When when the statement first came out, uh, my uh, public reaction in a tweet that I put out was for the first time that I can remember where we had taken an uncomfortable proactive approach. And I say uncomfortable because of all the reasons that we've been discussing is that this wasn't going to be a universally popular decision um, because it is going to involve change. But it was an example of looking at the future and where that is traveling and taking steps to mitigate uh, potential, potentially severely damaging implications of having legislation forced upon us. Exactly. Yeah, and I think I think I think this is where people are struggling with at the moment because yeah we are we are doing it, and I think the organisation's thoughts behind this are they're doing it in a in in as a painless a way as possible. Um, I know a lot of people are, are really objecting because they didn't get consulted on it. But you know, at the end of the day, what would the consultation have done? We would have just we would have just faced exactly the same comments that we're seeing now, and we would have procrastinated further. If we procrastinated further as a community, then again, we would have had exactly that. It would have been forced upon us. You know, that it's not it's not a case that we just want to give it up. We're, we're not throwing ourselves under the bus here. We're trying to divert away from from having legislation um enacted upon us so i can't i really don't understand where there is so much opposition and so much um foot stamping going on you know for want of a better word and it yeah we do we need to grow up a little bit and and yeah move forward with it yeah it's interesting it was something that i had discussed with somebody you know a week or two ago when when we were talking about the politics behind this which was as you highlighted this uh, Potentially, because I don't have I don't have the full details because I'm not on any of these committees that of any of the organisations that brought forward this suggestion, uh, nor am I particularly well connected with the um, high levels of the cartridge companies. But we were discussing the politics of the behind the scenes consultations prior to the announcement, and I was pretty much of the same opinion, which was that, yeah, okay, ultimately, um, it seems like there's been very poor communication. But what would have been the outcome of a more uh, across-the-board approach to this discussion? I honestly believe that the only outcome was that we may not, we may not have seen uh, this advice 
and drive towards phasing out of lead for a year, two years, exactly. three years, five years, ten years. Who freaking knows? Because yeah. one thing that yeah. you can guarantee is that those businesses would not want to change because it's going to require massive capital investment. And like you said, those that will step up and supply the demand, they will take the market. And those that don't exactly. want to, yeah. they will die out and you know fade into the list of companies who historically made cartridges. And you know what? It is, it, That's free markets. No, exactly. I mean, it's it's it, yeah, it's evolution, isn't it? If you can't if you can't keep up, then somebody else is going to surpass you. Um, you know, and unfortunately, it is as simple as that. But yeah, it is. We've, there's so many. There are so many problems um, facing the facing shooting you know, going forward. Um, yeah, we we need to be a lot more. Um, as I say, proactive. We need to we need to tackle these things head on, and we need to have grown up discussions about them. And as you say, I think if it had gone to discussion, and we people would have said, "Oh, we need longer. We need this. We need," and and we would have just been sitting milling around. So at least we've given ourselves um, a deadline. Um, and again, it's it's the other thing that to, to remember with this is, yeah, this is this is voluntary. This is something that we're going forward as a. Um, as a positive, so it's you know we are we are giving ourselves the opportunity to do this. Um, we're giving our you know we're giving the communities a chance to adapt to change um, to figure out how we're going to do it. And five years is a long time. It is you know, five years is a very very long time. Hopefully, we'll be out of lockdown by then. Well, fingers crossed. Exactly. Well, if, yeah, <laughs> if, if not, then I yeah we, we, <laughs> if we'll have other problems on our plate. But um, no, it's, yeah, it's, and I think I think I think most of the opposition from from what I've seen is definitely coming from the the high pheasant boys, um, you know, and and there are I'm unpopular yeah, for suggesting that very thing. <laughs> Sorry, I said I'm unpopular for suggesting that very thing. It, well, exactly, but it is, you know, from from what I've seen on social media, there's a lot of a lot of opposition from that. And don't you know, don't get yet me wrong, you know, there's nothing finer than going out and and seeing some beautifully presented birds. Um, you know, if you've got to make some adjustment to that, or your cartridges are going to cost you a little bit more for some of the um, the the non toxic alternatives, it's it's negligible compared to with you know compared to the cost that you're paying for the day. Um, yeah, we're not we're not talking. Yeah, we're not talking about breaking the bank. At the end of the day, if we want if we want to be able to pursue the or that that specific side of the sport, um, then we're just going to have to we're going to have to adapt to it, and we're going to have to figure out how we can do it. Diggory Haydock again. Um, and from my point my point of view, I'm I'm looking at it now from a pragmatic point of view. It's terrible terrible for my business. I deal in guns that can't shoot steel shot really. Um, people like me, people who deal in old English stuff, are now looking at um, a potential reduction in the value and the attractiveness of those things to market. Um, if you can't shoot them or you're unprepared to bear the cost of shooting bismuth um, or you think that the potential people in the market who will buy, buy this stuff are unprepared to consider English guns in future because of the perceived problems with ammunition, um, that could have a domino effect on the value in the market of all these guns that we love and cherish and, and make a living out of. 
Um, so the, I think in, in some respects, people like me, although I realise that we're a small sector, are probably the worst affected by, uh, the, by a potential lead shot ban than anybody else in the shooting sector. Um, but there's no point having a hissy fit about it. If, if the world is moving in that direction, what we need to do is say, right, well, then what are we going to do about it? What are our, our options? And that's why we need to start looking at the potential of steel shot to be used in older English guns and developing ammunition that works. Um, I think we need to look at the cost of bismuth. And I think for your average shooter, it's not as bad as people think. Um, if bismuth is a pound a shot, if you shoot you know, 200 bird days with an average shot to kill cartridge ratio of four to one, um, I think, you know, you can, if you perhaps then average out, if you're in a team of eight guns, that you'll be shooting 100 cartridges that day. If you were shooting lead, it would cost you £35 in ammunition for the day. If you're shooting bismuth, it'll cost you £100 for ammunition. Now, that sounds like a big deal because you're essentially tripling the cost of your ammunition. But you're putting it in the context of a day that probably cost you £38 a bird. So um, you're, you, you, know, you drove there in your Range Rover at you know, 80 miles, at 17 miles per the, to the gallon, and gave the keeper a £50 tip. You know, you're, you're talking about a day that's probably cost you 1000 or £1,200. So adding £60 to the cost of your day isn't enormous. Um, and I think a lot of the talk about it being you know, becoming economically impossible to carry on shooting if you have to go over to bismuth isn't really borne out by the analysis of the real costs of shooting. Um, I think if, um, if you're shooting big numbers, and, I, and, and the people that have been most vocal in opposing this have been the people that, uh, that shoot you know, extreme pheasants, in inverted comment, commas, and people who shoot very big commercial days. Now, one chap told me that his uh, cartridge bill would go up from sort of seven or eight thousand pounds a year to thirty thousand pounds a year if he swapped over to bismuth. Well, you know that's because he's shooting twenty-five to thirty thousand cartridges at game every year. And frankly, if he could afford to shoot twenty-five or thirty thousand cartridges at game every year, although thirty thousand pounds in ammunition sounds horrific to, to average mortals like myself. Well, you know, if I was to look at his overall shooting bill for the year, it's still no bigger a proportion of it than, uh, than the extra 100 quid a day that would go on to mine looking at my shooting expenses for the year. Um, so I think people need to, to get a grip. You know, it may be that you have to drop the number of birds you shoot. It may be that you have to – shoots have to start changing the way they present birds to make them sporting without necessarily – thinking the only way to present sporting birds is that they're at 70 yards. Um, th this is a relatively new phenomenon. And I think if we are trying to tell the layman and the, you know, the non-shooting public that we're conservationists, um, when we then come back very aggressively telling people that we're not prepared to compromise on lead shot because we insist on shooting pheasants at 70 yards, well, our cons conservation credentials you know, crumble pretty quickly, in my opinion. Diggory also highlighted a potential benefit in self-interest to taking a proactive approach. I think what we're seeing here is that 
um, shooting organizations perhaps taking a, a medium-term view and saying, look, if we do nothing in f- four or five years' time, we may well have legislation dropped on us from a great height and not be able to contribute in any meaningful way. Uh, whereas if we enter into dialogue now with stated intentions of a voluntary removal of lead, if the industry is connected with providing ammunition and guns and shooting, um, can make it so that that transition is as painless as possible. Um, now, th- that sends out a good signal to the the neutrals, if you like, in government to say, well, perhaps you don't need to come down with draconian legislation because if over the next five years we can come back to you and say, look, we've reduced the use of lead as shotgun ammunition by providing alternatives to 85% of what it was in 2020, uh, you don't really have a problem on a magnitude that's worth legislating against anymore, do you? And it may well be that the government take the view that 85% compliance is good enough, uh, which would lead, uh, which would leave um, scope for some for some exemptions in the way that when lead-free fuel was imposed on the motoring industry, uh, they back in 2000 they allowed for an exemption of 0.5% or 0.2%. I'm working from memory. Of, um, of, le- of fuel sales to be leaded petrol, which are sold only through affiliated clubs of vintage motoring organisations, uh, so that if you do happen to run a vintage car that requires leaded fuel and can't be adjusted to take unleaded fuel, then you can still run it. But the fact that so few of those things are putting lead into the air that it actually is now inconsequential um, has allowed for that that, that exemption, and I would hope to see us making a case for a similar exemption for vintage British guns, which have two and a half inch chambers and Damascus barrels, and for ma- various historic reasons are not readily um, uh, adjustable um, to take uh, economic uh, non lead alternatives. Um, and but the, the fact that there are so few people shooting old English guns at, at game, that, that the number of pellets hitting the ground as a result of them continuing to use them would be so small as to be of no consequence, environmentally speaking. With all this discussion, there is one giant elephant in the room. What about plastic contamination from shotgun shells? Uh, one of the other elements to this discussion that is brought up is that well, not only are we not ready in terms of supplying steel shot, and we've just talked about that. We've, we're, I think, we're both in agreement that, that markets will find a way to deliver it. But the second part of that is that we've only very, very recently been able to uh, load steel shot with biodegradable plastic wads. Now, I personally. Obviously, I shoot steel um, as per the regulations. So when I shoot on the foreshore, I'm shooting steel. Um, but when I'm walked roughed up shooting up here in Scotland, I'm I'm shooting lead out my 20 bore. But I have, for as long as I can remember, shot fiber wads because I never liked the idea of firing plastic out over the um, over the, the fields and hills. Where do you uh, where where do you sit on that? Because as it stands right now, people could shift, but we don't. It's not a universal approach with regard to biodegradable wads from all the manufacturers who produce steel. 
No, I mean, this is it. And it's, you know, we we don't want to be polluting. And again, we can't seen, we can't be seen to be polluting. Um, so, you know, again, we've, we've got to, we've got to push forward and, and use what's best for our environment. Um, and what we'd be happy to, to see, you know, scattered behind us. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? You know, we don't, um, we need to ensure that that environment is in as pristine a condition, if not better than, than when we stepped up on it. Um, so yeah, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I'm going to, going to really make a push now in the next couple of years to, uh, to go out and, and shoot, go out and practice, get out on the playgrounds with, um, with a lot more of the steel alternatives, um, just work it, work with it a little bit more, um, just see where we are. I mean, I, I don't do anywhere near the amount of game shooting now as I used to, but you know, I still, I still do enjoy a few days every season. Um, and you know, I, I want to be, I want to be using um, lead-free alternatives, and uh, and I think that's what we need to do. We just need to get get out there, get on the playgrounds, um, go and have a play, um, and just just figure it out again. Just see where we are. It is amazing how innovation develops when exactly. industry is forced to do so. So, with regard to biodegradable. Um, cups for steel. Obviously, we've already seen some uh, very recent innovation with regard to that. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's from from Ely and the plastic wad dissolves in water in 24 hours or 48 hours. Uh, yeah. And I know that there's some other technologies and and um, research going on right now. It will happen, and it will happen very quickly. Uh, and I think that anybody that thinks that it won't. I'm not sure whether they fully appreciate the drive for people to make money because ultimately that will drive the innovation. Exactly. No, and and that, that is it in a nutshell. If we've, if we are finding ourselves in a position where we are going to have to start using these alternatives, then the, the money, the money will be there or the incentives will be there for the manufacturers to go forward to make these products for us and to, to ensure that they are available for us. Um, and I, you know, I know that the, the cartridge manufacturers are, are feeling it at the moment um, and are certainly not going to be um, embracing our words at the moment, but you know, it is going to be, it is going to be a painful change. Um, but hopefully, you know, hopefully going forward, they're, they're going to come out of it um, with a, 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 a fine product that fits the bill. Um, and again, I think you know, it's because we've, we just, within field sports, we always hark back to tradition or we hark back to this is what we've always done. You know, in this day and age, we just can't do it. And I realise there are going to be you know, a lot, another, another big aspect of, people, of, of people's objections were, yeah, we're not going to be able to use um, our old, you know, side by sides, our old traditional shotguns or whatever else. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, again, that that for some, you know, for some of those guns, then yes, they're not going to be um, to be able to be used. Um, that that is a shame, but unfortunately, that that is just part of the process. You know, it's not going to be it's not going to be painless. Um, but same as with all change, we've got to go through it. Thanks very much for listening to this quite complicated topic, but one that is incredibly important. Join me again in a week's time where we take another walk into the wilderness.